everyone, welcome to Level Up with Lilith. Thank you for joining into my podcast. So I have an impromptu guest today. Uh, I actually met him this morning and um, after listening to about 5% of what he had to say in his journey, I just knew he had to be there to, to give you his story. I think he's very inspiring. We can all learn a lot from him, but I just look forward to the conversation. His name is Arya Garian. He's been a CMO for many companies uh, and I would love to start with an introduction. Thank you, Lilith. It's so nice to be here with you today. So um, I was actually born in Greece, in Athens, uh, but grew up in Boston and have been on the West Coast living in Silicon Valley for the last 20 years with my family. Um, my wife, Talene, and I have three kids, uh, Alec, Talad, and Shant, and they are 22, 18, and 13. You've been busy then. We have been extremely busy and blessed, Very for nice. sure. And throughout my life's journey, um, I knew early on I wanted to be a marketer and growth marketer, for that matter, uh, helping organizations really think through complex solutions and uh, started my career at Procter & Gamble. Spent the early part of my career all over the world, um, based in New York and Geneva, Switzerland, and ultimately Cincinnati, launching products everywhere. And it was super fun. And what a great training ground. All things I, I can say, I. I I've learned I can, I think, go back to my early P&G days um, as the influence. I like that. So was travel a reason why you picked the companies or the companies were the reason why you were open to travel? <laughs> yeah, I think the latter. Okay. It seems like um, until COVID, maybe travel was sort of the, uh, the rule uh, of the day. And opportunities, I think, come when people are open-minded and um, you have to be with people. And I think particularly in, in any sort of marketing, business development, strategy, sales role, it's really important to get to know the people you're with and develop deep partnerships, not uh, the opposite of what I call vendorship. That's right. Right? It is about deep connections and trust, and then a long-term relationship is then built. Yeah. Well, tell us where you're at today. So um, for the last year, I've been sitting on company boards, advising leaders and companies, and also a variety of advertising agencies. And as a five-time uh, public company CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, I think I have a unique perspective because I look at it through a different lens. And, and it's, it's hard. CMOs are challenged these days because organizations demand a lot from them, and they're often the first to be blamed if things go wrong. They're um, infrequently praised if things go well. <laughs> and, and And as a result, um, you know, you're on your toes, and, and I always guide other chief marketing officers to be bold, follow your North Star, don't be afraid, and uh, if you've been recruited to an organization, remind the leaders around you what your purpose is and why you think you can have impact. I like that. I, I do, I definitely agree, keeping the open communication with your leaders is the most important part of a job that actually most of your job is to spend money, right? And and get the brand out there, and mm -hmm. um, you can't do a lot of that without the budgeting and the spending, but you also have to have the communication skills to tell them exactly how it's going to benefit. And I, I also know, um, and I'm not a marketer, obviously, by nature, so I'll ask you a lot of questions about your journey, but sure. um, the other aspect of this is a lot of marketing takes time to show ROI, mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably the toughest conversation to have, right? You're spending now for the future, and how long do you have to wait to actually see the results? That's right. And you have to think about marketing, I think, in, in a multifashioned way. 
right? It's no longer small marketing, coloring within right. the lines. It's make big M marketing. And uh, it's funny, I've, I've worked with a lot of CFOs who say things like, the only marketing report I look at it each month is the P&L. <laughs> so it puts a lot of pressure on you to perform. So I think you have to look at it in a multi-tiered fashion. Certainly the big M is building brand, uh, building human connection if it's a consumer-facing brand. Totally. Or if you're dealing with a B2B model, ensuring that your partners truly treat you like partners and recognize the impact that you can have in helping them build their business. Um, and then there's a lot of tactical stuff that has to happen, right? Pick, picking, choosing, um, supporting cast members for you and the teams that you're working on is really critical. It's, um, it's hard many times because you're, um, you're basing your assessment on conversation um, that isn't certainly very long when you're interviewing folks. You look at their reputation, but each circumstance is different. So you have to trust your instinct. And I really believe that um, in the end, if you're smart about the way you build um, relationships, you'll hire really good people and treat them well and, and then, of course, expect great things from them too. What do you think are some of the, with your, with your experience in marketing, especially in different companies, mm -hmm. especially publicly traded, how has marketing changed besides, you know, going from, uh, I agree with you, the small mm. M to the big M, and you've got to be a visionary at this point in mm -hmm. any executive role. Um, but what do you think are some of the biggest changes in marketing, and how have you mm -hmm. personally been able to adapt to them? I think some of the biggest changes I've seen over the last 30 years are um, certainly around performance-related activity. So the expectation is every dollar you, you spend will deliver uh, some multiple of that dollar in return. And like you said at the outset, Lily, I think it's extremely difficult to go into any sort of uh, activity campaign uh, with that in mind solely, right? You have to think about the long longitudinal sort of experience yes. that the consumer has with the brand. And it takes time. You have to invest and spend a little bit to get people on board that then give you the right, gives you the right to go, off, go after them with more of a direct response model. Yes. Uh, so I've, I've seen brands that try to go too hard on that DR sort of uh, expectation and fall flat on their face, um, and others that find a way to sort of be more strategic, think bigger picture about building relationship. Uh, I was the inaugural chief marketing officer at One Medical, which today is part of Amazon, and right. uh, had quite an interesting journey. You know, when I, when I got to the company, there was moderate growth. We hadn't crossed the chasm. We hadn't found a way to really get big. Uh, we were only in a couple of markets and hadn't found really sort of that secret sauce. And I, I'm a big believer in leaning into the consumer, understanding research, insights, segmentation. But at the end of the day, also following, like I said earlier, your instinct. So for me, understanding that there was a problem in healthcare um, very difficult to get a same-day, next-day appointment with your primary care physician. Uh, if we can solve that problem, wow, that's a huge pain point <laughs> that we're addressing. Right. So there was a lot that had to happen, though, behind the scenes to ensure that the algorithm that enables us to make those same-day, next-day appointments for the people for whom we provide care could happen. And once we knew that the brand promise could be delivered upon effectively, um, it was off to the races. 
then you double down and you spend more time talking about the doctor's office reinvented and this new experience for the consumer that is truly breakthrough. And it's funny, so many companies have subsequently said, can we follow in, in their footsteps? In fact, I went from, Sutter, from one medical to Sutter Health. Sutter is the second largest not-for-profit health system in the US, a $15 billion organization. And one of the first requests I got was, how can we create a version of one medical in our system? And uh, it's so hard to do because you think about the people you hire in an organization, how they're wired, what motivates them to join. It's very different from a large organization and, and candidly becomes an impediment, I think, sometimes to an organization's growth trajectory. So there are things you can do to enlighten you know, the consumer so that the experience is better, but um, fundamentally, there are some major shifts that have to happen in businesses if they want to emulate you know, a company that's broken through, that's changed the paradigm. Yeah. So, so tell me this, and you kind of alluded to this, but obviously marketing with different industries is different. Uh, you have to have a different process. And then if it's consumer versus business marketing, that's a different process. But I'm more curious about the public versus private marketing. Like, mm -hmm. do your copies get, go go through more of a due diligence? Do, do everything you say out there, your PR, have to go, go through so many different people? Mm -hmm. And what are some of the challenges there? So if you can go over the process differences and the challenges that you've experienced. Yeah, and, and I'd even take it one step further and think about heavily regulated industries yeah. like education, and healthcare. Uh, and healthcare. Yeah. So I was the CMO at University of Phoenix and then moved into healthcare. And um, every word you state goes through legal scrutiny. Right. And it becomes tiresome after a while, but you get good at figuring out what the lawyers <laughs> will and won't approve, right? Because copy really matters. Of course. Sadly, we're a litigious society, so it becomes a really big issue for us to, um, to overcome. Especially in the B2C space, right? Right. Yeah, that right. must be challenging. What about industry-wise? Which one was the, the most difficult for you to put out there in the market and, and get brand awareness? You know, I, th I think it's so hard to answer that question because every industry, every company has unique challenges and opportunities. I always tell marketers to sort of try to look through the trees to the forest um, because the opportunity might be in your, in your line of sight, but you have to take a step back. And um, I've never seen an industry or company, whether I've worked there, been an advisor, a board member, that doesn't have remarkable opportunity. It ultimately comes down to execution. It comes down to um, your attitude and perspective. If people around you and you have this tendency to wanna win, in a competitive environment, um, you can will that to happen. I really do believe it. I, uh, I, can see that. <laughs> I think if you're negative or dissuaded in some way or feel um, undue competitive pressure, that can bring you down too. Very true. And, and, and I've, I think I've that seen that. That could be applied in so many different aspects of the job in, in oh, any yeah. position. It's, you know, you're your first cheerleader. Right. And if you can't get past that, how are people going to actually help support you? Right. So I, I say to leaders, um, not just in the marketing world, but throughout organizations, CEOs in particular, you know, wear your brand as a badge of honor. You know, sit proudly in that catbird seat. Know that it's a lonely place to be, but really try to get people around you who believe. Have advisors, not just board members, people you can trust 
that'll speak to you uh, with sincerity and honesty. Because in leadership roles, you know, everything people tell you isn't true, right? You're <laughs> smarter, you're prettier, you're, you know, harder working, you achieve more. And um, oftentimes, that's not always the case. There are challenges, and you need people around you that can be honest, that can be supportive. Um, so I know we're deviating off sort of the marketing realm, but I think it does affect the way marketers think about their role. And so many marketers are dissuaded from taking that risk or being um, a little bit more bold because they're fearful, uh, sadly because of what the environment around them has created. Yes, and one of the things that I hear a lot from marketers that they see as a challenge, and maybe you can help shed some light for people that are in the same situation, um, mm -hmm. when obviously when you have a big marketing budget, things are a lot easier to, to navigate <laughs> through. And then there is a, the more common one, which is startups with smaller budgets. Like, where do they start? How do they get uh, their budgets properly allocated? So I think it's funny you asked that question. Um, I've often had more fun with smaller budgets because you become creative. much <laughs> more creative, very resourceful. Um, you lean into partners that perhaps you wouldn't have considered. And I've discovered some amazing agency partners, small companies, individuals, firms, that just want a chance to prove their capabilities, and I've often been surprised. Um, I'm on the board of a company right now um, that uh, is in a really cool space, and uh, they needed some video production. And I went um, actually to Armenia to have video produced at one-tenth the price of what it would have cost here in the U.S., and the quality is as good, if not better, than anything I've seen here. Love it. And you think about how the paradigm has shifted. Yeah. Right? Even the traditional agency model, there were times in my life where I'd spend a million dollars in a 30-second spot. And you might get a few other, you know, takeaways. Uh, that's unnecessary, right? You can use crowdsourcing agencies like Tongle in L.A. that have 160,000 creators from 150 countries that will bid on your project and do exciting things for a fraction of the price of a full-service agency. So... I think there are disruptors everywhere, and if your budget is small, marketers in the world, you know, just go out there and see how you can maximize the impact. Yeah, and when it comes to um, B2C versus B2B, right? So um, obviously B2C, you're looking at a much wider audience, but you can generalize the behavior of the audience, right? And then mm. B2B, to me, is a lot more customized, uh, whether it's for groups or specific companies that you're trying to target. Which one is easy for you? Easier. Easier. I know it's not, none of those are easy. I mean, I, honestly, I think both have bespoke sort of elements, and you have to be thoughtful. Uh, you can't imagine that just because you have a large audience, the segments are all going to be addressed the same way. Of course. In fact, you know, I found it sometimes more challenging when you slice and dice a really big audience because one size does not fit all especially if you are a consumer brand. Mm -hmm. um, there may be some tenants to the value proposition that makes sense, but I think about it in terms of looking at market insights, audience insights, to then figure out on a B2B or B2C level, then what's the big brand idea? And, and what are you fighting against? What's the enemy of the brand? Really identifying that I think is critical to the success of the marketer winning. Um, setting that North Star, that big brand idea, ultimately will drive that differentiated sort of point of view. But um, additional sort of last critical element is what your ambition is as a brand, either as a B2B or B2C company. 
uh, determining pretty quickly and crystallizing that for yourself, your department, and your company through this sort of architecture that you create, I think is critical to the success. So it, it's challenging for both small and big brands, but um, it can be equally rewarding if you mm -hmm. take the right steps and be effective. And in order for you, let's take the consumer side, for example, um, in order for you to do the proper segmentation, mm. depending on the type of brand that you have, you have to pay attention to the data. Mm. Um, not a lot of companies pay attention to the data, right? It's yes. a lot of like revenue, what we spent, what we got, but what is the data actually telling you and how can you leverage the data you've kind of put aside because you don't think it's important? I think it's very, very important. Every piece of data that comes into your system, whatever system that is, can be leveraged some way to understand the consumers better. So Lilith, I couldn't agree more. I can tell you, and I'll keep um, the suspects nameless, <laughs> um, so many of the companies that I've been a part of, either as an employee um, or as an advisor or board member, forget about the elements of research insights and segmentation. And they just wanna jump in and often to the conclusion. And I've, I've said um, many times to private equity firms, venture capital firms, that you need somebody with that sort of growth mindset, marketing mindset on staff to prevent many of these companies from making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and just taking a moment to understand through segmentation who the audience might be, why it's changed, how it's evolved even in the last year. Think about what's happened since COVID has ended. Right. Um, you know, there's a renaissance in so many industries that spirited a lot of change. And I think still many leaders are faltering because they haven't recognized that they need to pivot. I can see that. Speaking of pivot, um, technology and marketing, let's call it, we could call it any kind of automation, we can call it AI, we can call it Gen AI, whatever it is, you've seen those transitions. Um, where are you at in terms of implementing technology into your marketing? So AI is the buzzword of the day. <laughs> it seems like every organization that I touch thinks they need to have an AI element component for um, themselves to be taken seriously. Um, look, I think there's application, whether it's heavy or light, I think still is to be determined. I think there's a lot of um, falling out still in the category to see what role AI will have. Yes. There's no doubt that if you can help through intelligence, doesn't have to be artificial, exactly. some sort of intelligence that helps then give you a leg up, either versus competition or against the, the target audience that you're trying to reach, um, you'll win. Um, so I think throughout my 30 year career, I've seen lots of technology sort of come and go. At the end of the day, um, I really try to keep it simple. I think leaning into the, I call them the vital few, the priorities that are most important to your immediate success will help you as a marketer, help you as a business leader um, reach your goals. I've seen so many leaders, I'm sure you've seen them as well, who have 12 things on their, their, their um, to-do list and you often then will ask, well, you know, which are the most important? And they'll say, all of these are. Well, you have to weight them in some way because an organization gets distracted. They get um, dejected if there are too many things on the, uh, on the table that they have to address. I agree. And, and when it comes to buzzwords, what I've seen is 
you know, there's so much AI. It's a smoke right now, right? Mm-hmm. There's you're gonna companies are going out there. They're implementing so much artificial intelligence into their business without really understanding it. Where you know, once the smoke clears, things will mm-hmm. be more clear. But right now, what I'm trying to encourage companies and people to do is really look at the whole point of AI is to customize it for you. It's not an off-the-shelf product. You go and plug in and you expect it to work like the next company. And so if you don't understand what you actually need and how you can customize the intelligence you're seeking, it's just not going to work. And on top of that, is it going to work with your actual technology? Right. Or is it going to be a standalone product that you're, it's just going to look really pretty and you can do PR on it until it actually gets implemented properly? Really well said. Um, I'm working with several companies in the healthcare space and I think artificial intelligence can have a remarkable impact on cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, many companies in the life science space are leaning in because they realize that, yes, research can take you so far, but if you can use smart technology around you to help um, delineate sort of what choices to make uh, when a whole slate of opportunities in front of you, y- you could actually uh, improve patient outcome. Okay. And that's really exciting. I think that's an application that really works. That's fair. I can see that. So um, let's pivot a little bit. You've, uh, you've, you said five public companies you've been CMO yeah, for? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> while raising three kids? Yeah. How did you do that? So I have a great wife. Obviously, it takes two <laughs> to tango. And uh, um, our kids are well-grounded. I, you know, it's, it's hard to do, but um, both... Colleen and I are Armenian. We're very involved in our Armenian community in Cupertino in Northern California. Um, And uh, the church becomes an extension of our lives. Um, Our kids grew up in Sunday school and Armenian school. And my oldest son uh, was ordained as a deacon when he was 16 and serves on the altar. And my youngest son um, is following in his footsteps. And I think those elements certainly help shape, you know, you as a person. But we're also firm, right? There are ground rules and there's discipline Um, (laughs) yeah and expectations that I think are realistic we've never sort of set the bar um, at a at a level or rate that is um, unreasonable right unreasonable Unreasonable. I mean I think achievable is is always an interesting question because some obviously achieve more than others but at the end of the day you want them to become um, good level-headed sane (laughs) individuals yes. because there's so many challenges and influences and and distractions in life um it's hard it's yeah. really hard especially here right in america when yes. when us armenian kids grow up in america that mindset has to shift here right right want to teach the kids to think for themselves rather than be do what you told them to do right because it just doesn't that's not that's not a good mode of survival here right right and, and you know they, they see the example that um mom and dad set, and I think it has uh, an impact on their lives. So my wife, Talene, uh, I met her when she was getting her PhD. She's a neuroscientist. And we moved to New England, where she then did a postdoc at Harvard Medical School. I mean, she's much smarter than me. <laughs> and um, I was really impressed with how thoughtful she was about her educational experience. Um, she was born in Lebanon, grew up in Greece, and came to the US for college for the first time. Yet when we were dating, she always made time for me. We had, we had um, a lot of focus on each other. And then when the week came and she had to go back to the lab and do her schoolwork, she was 100% laser focused there. Wow. 
and I think that's unique, right? So we didn't cloud sort of the two. And our kids, I think, see the example that we set. We're both um, driven, but we both really We're care present. a lot and yeah. really present. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> we try. So would you say that your your style as a father mm -hmm. or a parent is the same, your, yours and your, uh, your wife's yeah. style as, as parents, um, do you think is the same leadership style that you have in an organization? Yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's not a trick question. No. And actually, like, I could get multiple different answers. Personally, I'm also a mom. Mm -hmm. um, and my husband and I have a style that sometimes I actually do implement at work, mm -hmm. but not always because mm -hmm. my kids are small. I can't talk to them right. <laughs> the same way I talk to my kids. But, but I still have the same values. Sure. Um, I think you nailed it. I mean, the values certainly are the same. Um, I expect high standards, you know, from the people that I work with. I want them to be respectful, uh, but challenging. You know, I'm always asking for feedback. And I ask my kids the same. You know, what could I be doing differently? How could I help you? And I don't want one-word answers, right? Let's have a conversation versus a, you know, versation. It's not a one-way thing here, right? We're communicating. I speak with you. I don't talk to you. Yeah. I think language really, really matters. And I know that my kids, as I've seen them grow, and, you know, one just graduated from college and is starting work, and one is in college for the next five years, and then my youngest son is in eighth grade, they look at every step you take. And uh, they might not take it all in at one time, but I know um, it has an impact. And I think the same thing with folks that you work with in a professional environment. You know, it, throughout my life, I've, I've really tried to help younger people. Uh, whatever wisdom I've gained through the experiences I've had, you know, good and bad, like I check the ones I like, yep, I'm gonna do that. The ones I don't like, you know, behavioral-wise, I'll say, no way, I'll never do that. Um, I think you have to be cognizant of the impact your decisions have on the people that you work with and be, be really smart about then how you project mm -hmm. uh, to your coworkers. Um, so yeah, it's different with your family. Um, you know, I'm obviously much more loving, uh, but I care a lot about the people I work with too. That's good. Yeah. And, and that's a, you know, it's a personal personality trait that's not easy to leave at the door when you walk in, right? If right. you care, you just care. You care about people. Obviously, there's a level of care for family versus other people, but if you're just that type of a person, um, people respond to that differently than if you weren't. So Right, that makes right. Sense. And play with your kids, right? Totally. Have fun with them. Yeah. Um, let them let their hair down and have downtime, and it's not all about school 24-7. In our society, um, we're also driven... I think, and the people that, you know, we are just as people become so focused on um, the outcome, um, the journey should be pleasant and we should appreciate the beauty around us, uh, the people that impact our lives, the family members that we've interacted with, uh, the legacy that those before us left. It's yeah. often easy to forget about that and just plow ahead. Yeah. And you kind of have to stop and really think about who you are as a person, right? Your own right. identity, right. which is actually going to segue into my next question. Um, whether it's like internal or with your friends or with your family or even at work, I think personal branding is very important as mm. well. It's not just about the company you work for. What type mm -hmm. of a person are you when you go out there? Mm -hmm. Because I happen to strongly believe sometimes they'll buy you as the person 
um, and you have the company that you're representing, right? And so when the challenges happen in business, which it always will, it's the relationship that will keep it going. What do you think about personal branding? Yeah, I think it's really critical for anybody, anybody with um, a persona. Uh, I, I won't say those that are publicly right. you know, consumed. I think anybody should think about how they, uh, how they appear. Um, and I don't mean physical appearance. It's the words you use. It's the company you keep. It's the environment in which you spend time. Uh, you know, I, I also believe in uh, what I describe as a triple bottom line. I think it's Im obviously important for companies to make money and be profitable, but I also lean in on people and purpose. Yeah. And I've devoted a lot of my time to nonprofit entities. In Silicon Valley, I was the chairman of the board of the American Red Cross for four years. I was vice chair for three years. And, you know, I looked at my Red Cross colleagues and I said, it's really about implementing action. It's not just about sitting here and watching others do things. And the giant sucking sound when I made those statements were people saying, I've, I'm only here for ceremonial reasons. <laughs> and, you know, when you demand them for them to then lean in and be present, um, some will, some won't. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've done the same thing. I'm, I'm actually on the parish council at St. Andrew in Cupertino. I'm now on the diocesan council with um, our surpazan here, the Archbishop Havnandadarian. And why do I do that? I do it because I believe you know, the community and sort of the, the mother figure of the Armenian community, which can be viewed as church, is important because cultural language and uh, the ecumenical sort of piece of our lives is a big piece of our identity. Um, I'm also on the board of Boston University, my <laughs> alma mater, the School of Public Health, Very nice. and have been for four years before the pandemic. And I used to joke with the dean before the pandemic that you know, you say public health and people thought that meant the sanitation department. Really, oh. truly. You know, they're the ones that put those letter grades on the restaurants. <laughs> and post-COVID, all of a sudden, public health really matters. Right. Health really matters. And I'm really concerned about the health of our society. It's really a, a very important topic to me. And um, there's more to come. I think we can do like five different podcasts <laughs> on just that topic, right? It's, yeah. Uh, I agree with you. I yeah. think... Um, and, and the thing is, like, media drives a lot of the attention people give to public health and mm -hmm. even, I, like, individual health. And I don't think that we should rely on the media to understand how important health actually yeah. is. Uh, Are so you familiar with the concept, the social determinants of health? No. So picture it this way. For the first time in our lifetime, your zip code has more of an impact on your longevity than your genetic code. Oh. So where you live scary. will have an impact on your longevity access to great health care, access to clean air, access to parks and places to recreate, access to non-gun-free zones. You know, think about in the Bay Area, Oakland, the shootings in Richmond, awful. I mean, like every day, it's, it's an epidemic in our society. Um, and I think about that because everybody deserves the same chance. But if you're subjected to these parts of the country, and we'll just talk about the U.S. for a moment, <laughs> Um, and there's no way out, it affects all of us. It's yeah. not just a poor person's problem, it's an everybody's problem. And uh, we can't be naive and expect things to change and to insulate yourself from that. Um, look at the homeless crisis in this country. It's everywhere. You know, outside of multi-million dollar homes are encampments. And it's not fair to the people on either side of the fence, right? Yeah. But what do you do to solve the problem? These are 
major issues that are finally, I think, being tackled by our society. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of new things happen, right? Yeah. Things that we've never seen before, starting from the pandemic, at least not in our lifetime, starting mm-hmm. from the pandemic to the the way that the homeless environment has shifted to and, and the gun control and the political environment and the economic status. Like, there's so many new things that I personally haven't seen in my lifetime. Right. And so it just goes to show, like, sure, you can enclose yourself in your comfortable little area, right. but things will happen. Right. And right. We cannot be naive. Exactly. And and I think it, it crosses, you know, political boundaries. I, I don't think it's a, you know, red or blue issue. It's an American issue, and we need to tackle it as, as Americans, as citizens of a free country, because you can see how things deteriorate quickly when you see lawlessness and violence and, you know, what's then caused by all kinds of issues around socioeconomic uh, disparity. It's really tough. It's yeah. a big issue. Agreed. So um, with the issues and, your, your, you know, all these years of experience that you have and raising a family – what, what have you identified as, like, your, your hobbies? Like, what do you do for fun uh, to kind of stay sane? Because I need my hobbies to stay sane. Yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> so um, I love the piano. Nice. And um, thankfully, my kids play. My oldest son plays beautifully. My younger son is learning, and he's incredible. Uh, but in quiet moments, I'll sit and play as well. Um, I love spending time with my kids. So uh, just... Being out there, being present, again, as we said, you know, going to soccer matches, um, really important to lean in. My daughter started college a few weeks ago, and it's funny. I, we've developed a new closeness in our relationship because she's not physically here and, you know, talking on the phone, and she wants to spend time on the phone. And I remember when the pandemic started, she was um, stuck at home, and I almost felt like, you know, she needs to get out. So... Um, we would drive around the community, you know, and just sort of get some air and then walk together. Mm. And I think just being present for me with my kids, with my wife is really um, very satisfying and fulfilling. Yeah. So you made the best out of a not so yeah. situation. But, you know, I love ping pong. I love yeah, just, yeah. you know, being, you know, physically active, walking right. and talking with my family. And it's fun. Very good. Okay. So, um, I mean, you gave so much advice, but if there's, like, one thing that you would want the audience to go away with, whether it's marketing-related mm-hmm. or family or values, what mm-hmm. would it be? I don't know. I always try to help marketers um, gain more courage because there's so much stress and anxiety in a marketer's world because you never really know whether that bet you're, you're placing will work. And uh, it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to fail, fail fast, but learn from your mistakes, pivot. Um, and I think that's really important for marketers to hear. And I, I also encourage leaders of companies in the C-suite who are supporting cast members um, to also have leniency yeah. and uh, recognize that it's a trial and error game. It's not easy. Um, on the family front, we've said it a bunch, bunch of times, but it's, it's about being present and being engaged um, and just knowing your, your family. I like it. I appreciate that. So um, before we close, I normally end all of my podcasts with a riddle. So I'll say it. You'll solve it offline so the audience has a chance to also solve it. Um, so the riddle today is what is it that is always in front of you but you never see it? 
don't solve it. So I I'll, won't I'll solve it. I'll close it, it up now. saying thank, thank you so you. much, Ara, for coming. This was a great conversation. You're very insightful. You have a lot of experience, and you just have really good human values to, to give to people. So Thanks, Lily. Same that. to you. I've enjoyed this very much. You're thank fantastic. You. Thank you, everybody, for joining Level Up with Lidit. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you.